today on Heart and Mind, we begin with a study I'm calling Making Sense of the Cross. I originally had another name, but it made more sense to call it Making Sense, and hopefully that'll make more sense by the end. At least I hope so. And, by the way, I have a new feature I want to introduce at the end of each podcast, so stay tuned for that. But let's get started. I once heard Roberta Bondi read from her memoir of theological essays titled Memories of God. The essay she read to us, about 150, 200 scholars gathered together, and by the way, she kept us spellbound, was called Out of the Green-Tiled Bathroom. That title, too, will make more sense at some point, but here's how it begins. When the children were still in elementary school, three years after I married Richard and four years after I began to teach church history in the seminary, as I was walking between the living room and dining room one day, I discovered that I had lost the meaning of the crucifixion. I don't mean that I didn't know what Christians said about the cross. As a historian and teacher of Christian thought, I had a lot more information than most people have, and I knew that. I don't mean that I had lost my faith. It was much stranger than that, something more like what I would imagine a stroke victim experiences when she looks at a familiar object like a book or a dinner plate in an ordinary setting and can't understand what she is seeing. On that day, I looked at the cross, and it made no sense. All at once, the crucifixion had become as opaque to my heart as the water of a muddy pond in a forgotten field. She goes on to write, I prayed, please, God, tell me again, what is the reason for the crucifixion? We're looking at this notion of how to make sense of the cross. One of the books that I really recommend in our Um, study of this is is by Tony Jones called Did God Kill Jesus? The other book is by Mark Heim and it's called Saved from Sacrifice. The difference between the two, even though they take on the same subject, is the Tony Jones book is much easier to read for most folks. So in that book, Did God Kill Jesus? He tells a story about being asked to speak to a confirmation class at a Lutheran church. And he asked them one night, he asked the kids, I want you to turn to the adult sponsor, parent or whoever, and ask them this question. What is the meaning of the cross? Or why did Jesus die? So they took a few minutes, hubbub around the room, noise. Okay, kids, what'd you hear? What'd you think? And pretty much the response was, they don't know. Or I'd give them a C plus. It's a really good question. Now, you know, if you're on a treadmill or driving, and I don't think you can hit the pause button and write it down, but it's a really good idea to pause and ask yourself, do you have some answer to the question, why did Jesus die, or what is the meaning of his death? Because that's not an easy one. A kind of bonus question, I think, that goes along with this, and you'll see why in a minute, is where would you turn in the Bible to get some kind of answer. Well, in terms of the question, what's the meaning of the cross, we're going to look at five theories, and I'll lay those out in just a moment. In terms of that second question, where would you turn? Well, the obvious answer is the Gospels, but here's the thing. 
all four Gospels tell the story of Jesus' life and death. But almost nothing is said explicitly about the meaning of his death. You know, the soldiers did this, they gambled for that, there were thieves on the cross, but they never interrupt to tell you what it means. Letters of Paul, on the other hand, and other writers of letters, they don't bother to tell the story of Jesus' life and death. Really, hardly comment on it at all. But they do offer various meanings of his death. Now, the interesting thing there is that the Gospels and the letters, they're different in a lot of ways. They're different genres. A letter is not the same as a Gospel. They're written at different times. The fact that the letters were written in the 50s, mostly, and the Gospels not until the 70s and beyond, well, 20 years passes and things change. Specifically, the Gospels are written after the destruction of the Temple of, in Jerusalem. So that, that changes things and how you view Roman crucifixion, etc. And then there are different authors. The Gospel writers are different from each other. The letter writers are different. And one of the biggest failings of Christian education has been thinking of the Bible as this one book that agrees on every page with itself when it's really 66 documents or 66 books in a library and nobody expects 66 different books in a library to agree. So it's not surprising that we get different theologies of the cross. The five we're going to look at, and let, let me just say there are other mutations of these, but these would be five kind of major ones. They're called Ransom, Christus Victor, Moral Influence, Penal Substitution, and Last Scapegoat. Okay, so let me just walk through them, and here's what I want to do. I'm just going to briefly describe what the idea of this theory is and then give you a couple of scriptures that you can see how somebody who developed these theories or believes these theories would say, well, here's some evidence. But then I want to just poke a little hole or two into each of these because none of them agree with each other. In fact, many of them are contradictory. And this is the way uh, theology is done. You, you, you just kind of have to ask yourself hard questions. So the ransom theory is basically this. Jesus paid the price to ransom us from bondage to sin and Satan. And, in this case, you get some kind of evidence in both gospel and letter. So, for instance, in Mark, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Or in 1 Timothy, Chapter 2, there's also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. So you get the exact language of that. So you could build that theory, and people have. But here's the thing. There's nothing in these passages about God paying this ransom to Satan, which is what this theory is built on. The theory also implies that God and Satan are equal beings. And then there's the question... If humans have sinned against God, why is a ransom paid to Satan? So, the truth is that while this was somewhat popular with early church fathers, there's really not very many that hold to this anymore. 
The second one is it's called Christus Victor. C-H-R-I-S-T-U-S. Christus Victor. In this one, Jesus in the crucifixion gains victory over the cosmic forces of evil and the devil. And here's, here's one verse, for example, 1 John chapter 3. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Well, you have something there about Jesus destroying the works of the devil, but it's not exactly tied in any way to the crucifixion. But this notion throughout the New Testament about powers and principalities and demons and the devil and Satan and how Christians are to resist, it, the notion that they exist is in this theory paired with the idea that in the cross, Jesus conquers that. Well, one of the many questions that challenges this is, if the devil is defeated, why does evil persist? Why is it still happening? And why do humans have little to no agency? They don't, they don't get to do anything. Satan gets the blame for evil, God for salvation. And then, just for the heck of it, I'll, I'll mention this, but some people really don't think of these evil powers that are named as literal spiritual beings, but perhaps a kind of veiled or not-so-veiled reference to Rome and the empire. The next one is called Moral Influence, which pretty clear in the title. Jesus came to show us how to live and God's love, and so he healed people and he fed people, and, and for that, he was put to death for it. Rome didn't like the idea of somebody healing and feeding people without taxing. Uh, by the way, if you really want to kind of get a feel for this, James Carroll has a novel called The Cloister, and it tells the story of this view as espoused by one of its kind of chief proponents, Peter Abelard. Abelard, you can't read his own writings because they were burned. People didn't like the idea that he was stressing love as opposed to judgment. And so they castrated him, and they burned his writings. So maybe in a way that fits with the moral influence theory, that when you challenge things, they don't like it. But what about a verse or two that might support it? Well, here's one, for instance. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the notion that this is God's gift to us. John 3.16, God loved so much that God gave us Jesus. And so he comes to show us how to live, but Rome doesn't like that. A challenge, a couple of them actually, it could be seen, and some people have said, it, it underestimates the power of sin and evil in the world. Or it could be seen to trivialize the crucifixion of Jesus, positioning him as just an example the next one is called penal substitution. Penal as in punishment and substitution as in taking someone's place. So the idea is God sent Jesus to be a kind of sacrificial lamb taking our place on the cross. A couple of passages, both Paul, 2 Corinthians, For our sake God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Or Christ, this is Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So the idea is Jesus takes our place. But here 
are several pushbacks, and there have been many uh, books written about this. This model promotes violence on the part of God as a vehicle for salvation. God needed the blood of lambs in the Old Testament. God needs the blood of us, but Jesus takes our place and takes his blood. It's a kind of uh, abhorrent image for many people. It's often been used also to justify domestic abuse. There are stories of women being told by ministers that, well, yeah, it's bad what you're going through, but remember what Jesus went through. And even anti-Semitism has been promoted in the name of this. And then there's the unique kind of pitting of God against uh, God the Father over against Jesus the Son, which is kind of an irrational type thing. This teaching, by the way, was developed not until the 11th century and by the chief proponent Anselm. Um, and still, this has never to this day been a teaching for Orthodox Christians. So it's kind of an interesting latecomer, you might say. And for many people, not a very attractive one. The last one is called Last Scapegoat. This one's extremely interesting, complicated. I'll say more in just a minute. In this one, what Jesus does in his death is expose scapegoating so as to put an end to violence in the name of religion. So, it's bigger than any one verse. The theory is that everywhere in the Passion narratives, the Gospel writers are trying to expose the falsity of this scapegoating. So, for instance, there's a verse we've read many times in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus on the cross, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. Now, the theory of a scapegoat, innocent person being put to death for something, is a complicated one. And actually, in the ne next episode, I'm going to unpack this one in more detail. And I'll tell you why then. But one criticism of it is it's built on a kind of sociological theory of how the earliest peoples, earliest tribes, would have related to one another and the violence that escalated and gave rise to scapegoating. So bottom line is if you build a theory on how maybe early tribes and peoples relate to each other, there's no real easy way to prove that. But there's some really interesting thoughts there and so we'll look at it. Now, if you stand back, you got five views. Ransom, Christus Victor, moral influence, penal substitution, last scapegoat. Some people say, you know, I like number three, but not number two. And it's almost like we've constructed a theological cafeteria. I used to go to cafeterias when I was a kid in Texas. Yeah, I'll take the chicken fried steak, but no gravy. I'll take the mashed potatoes. Yes, I don't know. No salad. And then you get to the end and you, you check out. So people say, well, you just kind of construct from what you like about this one, what you like about that one. Uh, it's an interesting approach, <laughs> to say the least, and there's some pluses and minuses to it. But I think it's an interesting question. Does any of this matter? I mean, really, is this the theological equivalent of how many angels can dance on the head of a pen or a needle? I mean, what, what difference does it make? For me, the number one answer is each one of them tries to say something about who God is. 
Why did Jesus die? This theory says, because God is like this. And the next theory says, mm, no, God's like this. It's kind of um, fascinating that when the early church fathers, and they were fathers in the 4th century and beyond, started to put together the creeds as to what Christians would believe, they did not address how the cross worked. They just acknowledged it was part of the gospel. They argued about all kinds of things, whether Jesus was of the exact same substance as the Father or a similar substance and all these kinds of things. But they didn't argue about the meaning of the cross. And it really wasn't as big a concern. The penal substitution one, though, I want to just talk about because I call it kind of the public theology or restaurant kind of question. Here's the thing. If you go in a restaurant, you're eating with friends, you look around, I, I have this, here's my theory. You could go up to anybody, churched or not, knows the Bible or doesn't, and for the most part ask, hey, wh wh why did Jesus die? And the most common answer, they won't use the words penal and substitution, but they'll say something like, he took our place on the cross. It's fascinating that a theory like that could become so prevalent that it's in the air that we breathe. I think it's also the most troubling. So to examine it, I want to kind of deconstruct it a little bit. Take it apart and look at it. If you think about it, it's actually built on a rather shaky theological, so-called plan of salvation. This might sound familiar. You were born a sinner and do not always live for God. Sin separates you from God and leads to death and hell. In the Old Testament, animals were sacrificed and Jews kept the law in order to be saved. In the New Testament, God sent Jesus to be the sacrificial lamb to die for you. And then last, accepting Jesus as Savior leads to sins forgiven and heaven in the afterlife. If you rethink that plan, Original sin, you were born a sinner and do not live for God, is not really supported by either testament. Jews have never read the Old Testament that way. And the Christians that have, for the most part, have been influenced by St. Augustine, who misinterpreted a passage in Romans. Sin the second one, sin separates you from God and leads to death and hell. Well, sin does separate us, but repentance restores the relationship. The Old Testament word for that is turning, and the New Testament is a change of mind. We call those repentance. In the Old Testament, animals were sacrificed and Jews kept the law in order to be saved. Well, actually, animal sacrifice may not have been God's plan at all. Maybe Israel got that from other tribes or concocted it themselves, or maybe it was required by God. But here's the thing I know. Jews keep law to be faithful but they're God's people by God's doing. They don't have to keep the law to be God's people. Next, in the New Testament, God sent Jesus to be the sacrificial lamb to die for you. For you, that, that, that kind of language does not necessarily mean in your place. You can believe Jesus died for you and not necessarily with a penal understanding. And then last, accepting Jesus as Savior leads to sins forgiven and heaven in the afterlife. Well, Actually, the New Testament never says anything about accepting Jesus, and language about salvation is generally translated more um, 
as making whole. So let me just pause for a moment, kind of see if I can put things in perspective. I told you I changed the name of this course, or doesn't matter what I was going to call it, but I changed it to Making Sense of the Cross. So here's my question, several. What did the cross accomplish? And how are we made right with God? So you ask people, as I asked you at the beginning, what do you think? What did the cross accomplish? But the second question, how are we made right with God, leads me to a third question. How are these two things related? Is it possible that whatever the theory is of what happened on the cross is separate from how are we made right with God? Now, that's going to probably sound scandalous to a lot of people, which I get, but just bear with me. Atonement is a fancy theological word, but it actually is really easy to break down. At one. It's how we're made at one with God. So let's, let's think of it two ways. One is salvation. People talk about being saved. Being made whole in relation with God overall. The other is forgiveness. So in other words, if I do something wrong and I repent, I ask God, I'm restored to the relationship after I've sinned. But here's the thing. For Jews, and remember Jesus was a Jew, sins were forgiven by rituals of sacrifice. So Yom Kippur, for instance, they offer a sacrifice and they ask God to forgive their sins. But they are saved, if we can use that language, not by keeping the law and not by animal sacrifice, but by God's covenant with Abraham. In other words, God says, hey, I promise to be your God and for you to be my people. And that's who I am. That's what God does. Christians, however, have kind of viewed both forgiveness and salvation as accomplished by the work of Jesus and specifically on the cross. The question I have for us is what if we have something to learn from our Jewish brothers and sisters? Well, as I said, we'll look at these kinds of things next week, next episode, um, as well as the scapegoat theory, which I find just really mind-blowing. But now, as for that new feature, I'm calling it Ask a Scholar. It's where we'll take a question emailed in for reflection, I'll answer all the emails I get, best I can, but each episode I'll pick one to feature on the podcast. Or maybe I'll reach out to a scholar elsewhere and interview them using your question. So here's the invitation. Email me with any question, biblical, theological, religious. I'm not saying I know, but I can look and think, reflect, and, and ponder. My email is mikeg at cccc Dot org. That's Mike G at 4Cs, KC as in Kansas City, dot org. Today's question, it's a really interesting one, which is probably what I'll say about every other question I select. But here it is. Did Jesus grow up in a small town or a big city? What do we know about those sorts of places in the first century? This is an interesting question. Well, the Bible says that he was born in Bethlehem. That's a small town. Most scholars would say less than 100, um, maybe even in the 80s. That's where he was born, and that's a small village. 
when he grew up, his parents were from Nazareth, right? And so, or that's where he grew up. So they go back to Nazareth, and that's where he's raised. Nazareth, too, was a pretty small village, but it was very close to a city called Sepphoris, S-E-P-P-H-O-R-I-S, Sepphoris, large city, and it's possible that Jesus even worked there as a tradesman because of its size and the architecture and so forth. Um, but but here's, a, here's where it kind of, it's an interesting twist. Jesus, according to the Gospels, spends his life, for the most part, in the north, in Galilee. That's where Capernaum is and Nazareth and so forth. And these are in small towns, small villages, very tightly knit small villages. And then at the end, he goes to Jerusalem, the city of God, the big city of its time. So Jesus spends most of his ministry in small towns. Paul, on the other hand, the Apostle Paul, he spends his time mostly in big cities. He's in places like Corinth or eventually Rome. Paul, he puts, he puts more emphasis on the big city, which is kind of his missionary strategy. Ephesus, for example, another big city. So um, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about it. And then to kind of back up and look at the whole biblical picture of this. The Bible starts with a garden story. Well, that's about as small a town as you get, right? It's rural. And it ends, in the book of Revelation, with a city. But this city coming down from heaven called New Jerusalem, it's not exactly the normal big city. It's got a wall, it's got gates, but they're all open, not shut. And one of the architectural features is a river that runs through it and trees, the leaves for the healing of the nations. It's a kind of interesting move from garden or rural to city, but it's a city that's been transformed so that it's like the original garden. It's almost like saying it's the best of the small town finally comes to be the vision even for the big city. Well, I hope you've enjoyed being a part of this podcast, and I hope you'll uh, join us for the next one on Making Sense of the Cross. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.